Good morning, everybody. It's Wednesday. It's 10 o'clock. I'm Tim Harris. That means it's time for 10 with Tim. Um, uh, gosh, it's going to be a hard day today preaching Bobby Clark's funeral here in just a little bit. Bobby and Linda have been 10, for, 10 with Tim folks since the very beginning. Linda, we love you uh, very much and stand with you today and, uh, and all the days afterwards. Um, the other thing about that is, for whatever weird reason, if I'm wearing a tie in a 10 with Tim, uh, often, like this broadcast, will get more views than anything else ever. I don't, I don't know why that works. I don't know why, uh, and I don't, I don't know if you all can see the count, but I can see the count, and it's just so funny because if I'm dressed up, people watch it more, and if you know, I, I don't know. I guess other days they just see me here like I usually dress, and they're like, well, you know, I guess they're letting hobos <laughs> talk on Facebook now. Whatever, uh, if I have a tie on, people maybe they think it, you know I'm, I'm somebody. Uh, at any rate, we'll see how that goes today. But uh, but I have a tie on today. I have a hard day ahead of me, so pray for me. Uh, we're in Hosea chapter eight. Uh, you know, once more, I was kind of not really looking forward to the middle chapters of Hosea. It's not a long book, but. Uh, these are chapters that I haven't preached much because it's hard to form a message that's going to be compelling to people. But that is not the standard of what gives God's word value. It's 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 entertainment quality, you know, in a pulpit. Um, I, digging into these passages, I'm just really being fed, and I hope you are as well. I know I know sometimes it's hard, uh, and that's why it's good for us to read them together and talk about it. Hosea chapter eight begins with uh, "Sound the alarm." Uh, I think the Hebrew is uh, "Raise the shofar to your lips." That that sort of thing. The shofar is, is a ram's horn, of course, and the alarm that we're sounding is the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn. Um, there were religious purposes for sounding the shofar, but obviously and honestly, the the shofar itself was just the the uh, a way of making a public announcement. Uh, it would be the equivalent of the cow's alarms. You know what I mean? The other day when the tornado was coming through Bowling Green, um, the cow's alarms went off, and and you hear that roar, that siren, and it gets your attention. And the shofar in ancient Israel had the same function and the same effect. You hear the ram's horn and it gets your attention. You know that there is danger. And in most cases, the danger would be an invasion. And and, and, and then, uh, true to form, that's what is being talked about here in verse 1 of chapter 8. Sound the alarm. The enemy descends like an eagle on the people of the Lord. The enemy descends like uh, the enemy descends like an eagle. Um, it's really interesting. For one thing, Jose, as we've been reading, he loves uh, uh, images from the Exodus. He talks a lot about uh, the Exodus and you know, going back to Egypt, being shamed before Egypt, being in the wilderness, you know, to learn faithfulness and uh, and all of this. He 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 harkens back to the Exodus to make his point about the faithfulness and the fall of the people of God. Um, one of the themes in Deuteronomy uh, and in the Exodus story is the way that God hovered over and protected his people like an eagle, you know, would protect her, her, her chicks, the eaglets. <laughs> What's a baby eagle? Uh, Google that, y'all, and let me know. Uh, I, uh, a, a mother eagle. Deuteronomy uses that picture of God like a mother eagle, you know, hovering over her 
uh, her her babies. It's uh, it's this saving eagle, uh, this the saving eagle image that you find in the Exodus. Deuteronomy actually predicts the or includes a reversal of that, where it literally says that when you break this covenant, the enemy will come like an eagle. You know, and so Hosea knows his Bible. And, uh, and knows that image and, and plays on it here. There's that reversal once more that the saving eagle of the Exodus becomes this devouring predatory eagle, uh, which is the enemy coming as a consequence of the sin of the people. Now Israel pleads with me, help us for you are our God. That's in living translation. What they say in the Hebrew is, uh, help us, we know you. <laughs> we know you, uh, which is interesting. Um, I've said, and I think you're picking up the fact that in the Hosea, one of the themes is the knowledge of God. They don't know God. Uh, they need to know God. They don't know God. They think they know God. They don't know God. Their actions reveal that they don't know God. Uh, and here it's just one of those, you know, uh, one more repetition of that theme. Uh, we know you. They, they cry out to God and say, we, we know you. You know us. And uh, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of how the people will stand before him on Judgment Day, and he will say, "Depart! I never knew you." You know, so it's that sort of image here. They plead out, "We, we know you, but but it's too late. It's too late. It's not that God won't forgive. It's not that God won't." Uh, accept the repentance and confession of His people. It's that the consequences of sin are already at the door. You know, God will forgive. And I guess that's one of our, a lot of us as sinners, um, we equate forgiveness with the removal of consequences. And that's not the case. You know, you, you have sex on the prom and get pregnant. Well, you're probably going to have a baby. God will forgive you for your fornication, but you're still going to have a baby. You know what I mean? Uh, forgiveness doesn't necessarily eliminate the consequences. You brought this on yourself. And often when we ask God for forgiveness, what we're really asking for is an avoidance or an erasure of the consequences. We just want to avoid consequences. Most of us, forgiveness is beside the point. We just don't want to have to suffer anything for our stupidity, for our sin. And that's why the scripture says they're crying out, but it's too late now. The enemy is already there like an eagle. The people of Israel, verse 3, have rejected what is good. I love that. Now, again, another theme of Hosea. Are you catching on? Was it in chapter 3 about verse 5? That last chapter 3 was short, right? That last verse in chapter 3 where it says, they'll come back to me and they'll tremble, uh, they'll tremble after the Lord's goodness. You know, the goodness of God is one of Hosea's themes. And the idea here is they've rejected what is good. Um, you know, when we do that, we all do that. You know, God only intends to bless us. He only intends to bring good things in our lives. But we reject what is good. We don't ever know that's what we're doing. We always think that whatever we've chosen, whatever sin leads us to choose, we in our heads think this is going to be so great. This is going to be awesome. This is going to feel so good. And sin does feel good in the moment. If it doesn't feel good, you did it wrong. I mean, you know, sin is pleasurable by very nature. But understand, that pleasure, that that um, that, that satisfaction is, is short-lived, and, and, and that's the point. That short-lived satisfaction doesn't necessarily equal goodness. Goodness is something that can be savored. Goodness is something that doesn't melt on your tongue like cotton candy, you know? So we often, in our sin, in, our, in, our, in, our, uh, in the deception of sin, in the um, you know, this insanity of sin. We chase after something, but in effect, what we have done is reject what is good. 
Have you ever experienced that where you realize that sin took you a whole lot further than you meant to go and it cost a whole lot more than you meant to pay and you realize that you, you, you traded a lot of good things for, for what turned out not to be good at all? You know, And, and this is the picture of, of God's people. Notice the connection there, verse 3. They have rejected what is good. And then verse 5, I, I reject this calf, you know. Uh, again, they've turned to idols, and, and uh, as, uh, Hosea chapter 8 talks about the, the calves, the calf. That calf as a national religious symbol is pervasive in the Old Testament. Obviously, Aaron, you know, with Moses, thought it was okay. He made a calf and said, hey, everybody, here's your God, you know. I mean, he didn't see any sort of contradiction between Yahweh worship, worshiping the Lord and also making a calf and bowing down before it and calling it Yahweh. You know, Jeroboam did the same thing uh, as, as we read. Uh, and so this it must be a real, a, a real problem, a real cultural, probably from the surrounding cultures. We know that the calf was just a pervasive symbol in the, in the Canaanite religions. Um, how seductive that is, but, but it's intolerable to the Lord. It's against the Ten Commandments, you know. Um, Verse 6, this calf you worship crafted by your own hands. You know, I, th- I think literally in the Hebrew it says it was made in Israel, <laughs> you know, which is a way of saying it's not divine. It's, you know, made in China. It's made in Israel. Y'all, this isn't divine. You can't worship something made in Israel, you, you know. Uh, therefore, it must be smashed to bits, must be splintered. Um, very often the larger idols, it may be a golden calf, but the larger idols often were actually carved out of wood and covered with gold. So that's why the Hebrew where there's probably splintered. Uh, still it's gold, it's smashed to bits. But um, how slow we are to ruthlessly eliminate sin from our lives. It's got to be smashed to bits. You know, that's not how we operate. I talked to a, a, a person the other day who's just straight out of rehab and I was hoping he was going to do well. I still pray that he does, but but his story to me was, yeah, I don't really need, I don't, I don't need a 12-step program. I'm not going to need any meetings or anything. And actually, you know, I feel like I can probably still drink. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not going to get drunk, you know. And I, I just red flags going off for me because the idea that he can now, you know, alcohol nearly destroyed him. But now his idea is, I'm, now I feel like I can just take it home and keep it as a pet, you know. We always want to take sin and keep it as a pet. You know, but that's not how it's going to work. You know, it has to be completely eliminated from your lives. It is poison. It is a trap. It will destroy you. God wants to separate you forever from your sin. And that's what we call salvation. But you won't have it because we like to keep our sin close. You, you know, uh, it must be smashed to bits, the, the word says. Verse 7, I, I'm, I'm taking a long time today, you guys. I'm sorry. I, I'll stop in a minute. Verse 7, uh, they planted the wind and harvested the whirlwind. I think that's kind of a proverb. I think I've, I've heard, I think Chuck Schumer said that the other day. I don't even know if he knew he was quoting the Bible, but, but you know, it's, it's in the culture, that, that, that verse right there. Um, yeah, I guess it means the same as you reap what you sow. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind, you reap what you sow. Only here in this version, uh, it's this idea that, I mean, you, 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 you plant, but you're going to get a whole lot more than you, you, know, you planted. It's that, you know, payback is brutal. You know, or I should say in this case, blowback, right? You, you, you plant the wind and the blowback is much, much more than you anticipated. And again, we're talking about how sin works. 
Uh, the stalks of grain wither and produce nothing to eat. Even if there's grain, foreigners, uh, foreigners somebody else is going to eat it. Um, it's that picture of how sin works in our lives. You know, you plant, you work, but then uh, you have nothing to show for it. Uh, I think what is it, in the book of Haggai, it says that it's like you, you get all your money and you put it in a pocket with holes in it. Uh, man, that's how your life is, and you don't see that. You don't see the connection to your sin, that no matter what you do, nothing satisfies, nothing sticks. You can't get any, any momentum going. You can't get any progress. It's just spinning your wheels, you know. And here, man, you plant, you know, and you grow, but you don't harvest anything, and if you do, somebody else eats it. Uh, it's an incredible way that sin works. It never leads to the satisfaction that it, that it promised. Israel has built many altars to take away sin, but these very altars became places for sinning. Again, places for idol worship. Even though I gave them all my laws written down, you know, they act as if those laws don't apply to them. And then finally, verse 13, they, they will return to Egypt. Um, in this case, it's the return to Egypt. It's voluntary. It's their political maneuver to try to make an ally in Egypt to protect them from other enemies. But but God calls it for what it is. You think this is making you stronger. You think your political strategies make you stronger, but they make you weaker. And in the end, uh, you're going right out of the frying pan and into the fire. You're going right back to Egypt. See that? The reversal of the Exodus, which Jose loves to, uh, loves to use as an analogy. Pick up right here for tomorrow, chapter 9. Again, short chapters, but let's just keep plugging along. Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. Uh, again, uh, God bless you, Linda Clark. Uh, God bless all of you today who have loved Bobby. I'll see you out there at the graveside at 1. Um, I love you all today. Stay in the Word and uh, enjoy the sunshine today. And I'll see you in the morning, Lord willing, 10 o'clock for Tim with Tim. Uh, I love you all. I love you guys.